Now it's time to take out our Bibles together. So if you would, grab a copy of Scripture and with me turn to the book of John today. John 17 is where we'll be. John 17, again, we're taking a short break from Ephesians. Next week, Lord willing, we will be back in Ephesians 6. This week, John 17. Now suppose later today, when you were home by yourself, let's say, in your room, Jesus spoke to you audibly. You could hear it with your very ears. You could hear his voice. And he said to you, I'm up here sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And I'm up here every day. And every day I can bring five people up before God and ask him to help them in particular ways. Now we're just saying this hypothetically for this thought exercise. But every day, Jesus says to you, I can bring up five people to the Lord. I'm going to ask him to help them in particular ways. And guess what? Today's your day. So what do you want me to say to God on your behalf? What would you say? Could you think of something to say? I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of things we would want him to say, but what would we ask him to say? If we knew that very day Jesus was going to speak to God on our behalf, what would we ask him to say to the Father? Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, today we are looking at a passage of the Bible where Jesus does essentially that. He speaks to God on our behalf. Here in this passage, Jesus prays for us. And this prayer that we're going to look at is unlike any other prayer in the entire Bible. You won't find anything like this anywhere in the Bible. Mark it down in your mind. John 17 is one of the most amazing prayers in the entire Bible. It's the longest recorded prayer in the entire Bible. The longest recorded prayer of Jesus, of course, as well. And it is an extended prayer with all kinds of details that Jesus prays for his disciples, but we know it's not just Jesus praying for his disciples. This prayer, if you follow the course of John 17, this prayer is coming in the upper room right before they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is praying, knowing that his hour has come, knowing that he's about to go get arrested and about to die on the cross. He's been with these disciples for three years. And this is his final prayer for them. And he prays it out loud in such a way that they can hear what he is praying. And John recorded it down for us. Thank the Lord that he did. But we know from Jesus' words, it's not just a prayer for them. It's also a prayer for us. Before we read the, the, the whole text in its entirety, let me show you verse 20. We'll give verse 20 specifically, where Jesus says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. These there, he's talking about the apostles, but he's saying, I'm not praying just for them. I'm praying for everyone who believes in them or in me through their word. And so we know that this is a prayer Jesus is making for us as well. And so I want to read it with you. Actually, we're going to read verses 1 down to 21. So we're not going to read the entire thing, but we're going to read a good portion of it. John 17, starting in verse 1. These are the words of our Lord. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, obviously, there is way too much for us to cover in that passage and do justice to it all. And so I would encourage you to do some thinking and some meditating on this passage today, because there will be parts of it that we don't even touch today. And they're, they're important. There's deep theology in this prayer. One of the great things about this prayer is there is some deep theology and doctrine that has all kinds of effects for our lives and what we believe right here in this one prayer. But we're going to look today at three parts of Jesus's prayer. And the first part comes in verse three. Look at verse three again with me. Jesus says to God, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, knowing God. Knowing God is eternal life. This has massive implications, one being... That eternal life does not start after you die. Eternal life does not start 
after you die. We are not waiting on eternal life. Eternal life starts now. As you come to know God, you get a taste of what heaven will be like. As you come to know God in your life here and now, you get a taste of what it will be like in eternal life. A taste of the satisfaction for your soul. A taste of the contentment that we will have forever. A taste of joy and the fullness of life. We get a taste of those things now, before we die, through knowing God. Knowing God is eternal life, and eternal life starts now. This is what we were made for, brothers and sisters. It's what we were made for. This is what every heart in the whole wide world is longing for, but so many are trying to find it through some other means. Every single person in the entire world is trying to find that satisfaction for their soul. Every single person in the entire world is trying to find true contentment, joy, and fullness of life. And they are looking for it everywhere. And yet it is nowhere to be found except in God alone. We know that every single person in the world is looking for these things because that's the way God made us. He tells us through Paul in Acts 17 that God made us with hearts that are dying, reaching out to him, dying to be filled by the only thing that can fill them. And God did this. He made us with this desire so that we might reach out to him and find him, even though he is not far from each one of us. Knowing God is what it's all about. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says this. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's what you boast in. We don't boast in anything that we have done for ourselves, anything that we are, any of our abilities or our possessions. If you're going to boast in anything, boast in that you understand and know the Lord. Could you boast in that today? Could you say that of yourself today? I understand and know God because this is eternal life. Eternal life is not some state of being. Eternal life is not some place. Eternal life is knowing God. That is what we will do for all eternity. We will know God ever deeper. If knowing God does not bring you joy right now. If you have no desire to know God right now, what makes you think you would be happy in heaven? Seriously. If you have no desire to know God right now, why would you think you would be happy in heaven? That's all heaven is. That's all eternity is. It's knowing God from first to last. That's all we will be doing. No matter what we are doing, it is to the end of knowing God. And so if we are not desiring that right now, if we do not want that right now, if that brings us no pleasure right now, please stop and take a look at your life. Because that might be an indicator that you are not saved. If you have no desire to know God, if it truly does not bring you pleasure and joy, that is what eternal life is. Having, experiencing, and knowing God is the goal of 
everything. It's the goal of everything. It's the goal of the gospel. It's the goal of the Bible, of the cross, of the resurrection, of evangelism, of mercy ministry, of preaching, of churches. The goal of it all is that you would have God, that you would experience God, and that you would know God himself. That's the goal of all of those things. That's the whole point. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Talking about just one of those things that I just listed. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? For what purpose? That he might bring us to God. The whole reason that Christ suffered for sins, the whole reason Jesus died on the cross, was so that he could bring us to God, so that we could have God, so that we could know God. This is the point of everything. It's the goal of everything. And so since it is, since this is eternal life, then I exhort you, I plead with you, seek to know him. Seek to know him in your own life, in your personal life. Seek to know God. Nothing is more important in this pursuit of God. Nothing is more important than getting alone with the Lord and reading your Bible. Nothing will do more for you in your pursuit to know God than getting alone with the Lord and reading your Bible. The Bible is the primary way that God has revealed himself to us. And therefore... The Bible is the primary way we must come to know him. It's the primary way he tells us who he is, and it's the primary way we come to know him. And it's the primary way, therefore, that we experience eternal life here and now. Know the Lord. Pursue him. Seek to know him. J.I. Packer wrote one of my absolute favorite Christian books of all time. It's called Knowing God. And he wrote in that book, what does knowing God involve? Well, first, it involves listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it in application to one's self. Second, noting God's nature and character as his word and his works reveal it. Third, accepting his invitations and doing what he commands. And fourth, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he has shown in thus approaching you and drawing you into this divine fellowship. Notice how Packer there in that quote, notice how centered it was on the word, on the Bible, constantly coming back to how we respond to the Bible, to knowing God through this. Of all the people that I have ever met that have obviously known God, And there's been a number of them, right? In my life, and I bet you've met people like this too, you look at that person and you you say, they know God. Of all of those people that I've ever met, there is one trait common among them all. One trait that all of them share. What is that one trait? They are hungry for the Bible. Every single one of them. Every time I've ever met someone who obviously knows God, they are hungry for the Bible. Pursue knowing God through reading and studying his word, your Bible. 
And in that way, you can experience eternal life here and now, even before you die. Because what is eternal life? It's knowing God. Now, second, I want to move on to a portion of Jesus' prayer that comes in verses 14 through 18. This is where we get this phrase that you have probably heard before, in the world but not of the world. That comes right here in the Bible. If you've heard that phrase, this is where it comes from. We are to be in the world and yet not of the world. Now before we get into the the nuts and bolts of what that means, we must step back and ask, what does Jesus mean when he says the world? What does he mean when he says the world here? Because I'm, I'm telling you, he does not simply mean this planet. Every now and then, the New Testament will say the world, and it just means this planet that we live on, the world. But many times, when you read in the New Testament and you see that word world, the world, it means the ways of the world, which are opposed to the ways of God. That's what Jesus means here. The ways of the world being opposed to the ways of God. For example, in 1 John 2, Verses 15 through 16, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And it goes on to say, The world and its desires are passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so when Jesus says the world here, he means the ways of the world, as opposed to the ways of God. And so, in places like verse 15, Jesus says we are to be in the world. Look at verse 15 with me. Notice what Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays to God and he says, Father, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world. I do not ask that, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is saying, I'm not asking for you to remove them from this. I'm asking you to protect them through it as they are in it. Brothers and sisters, If we take ourselves out of the world completely, if we retreat from the world, we are giving up on our duty before God. If we retreat from the world as Christians, as much as I respect monks for their monastic discipline and devotion, as much as I respect all of the ways that they give themselves to the Lord, they are dead wrong in the way that they have chosen to live. Because to follow the Lord means to follow his mission in the world, to be in the world. They have taken themselves out of the world. They are trying to seclude themselves off from the world. Now, I don't think I'm going to have to convince any of y'all in here this morning to not become a monk. I don't think we're struggling with that in here today. But what some of us might need to hear, we might need a reminder that secluding ourselves off from all non-Christians is giving up on our duty before God. We cannot seclude ourselves off from all non-Christians. We cannot do that. The Bible says clearly over and over again, and we're going to talk about this here in just a moment, that we are not to let our company corrupt our character, that it matters who you are good friends with and who you spend significant time with, and yet you cannot take yourself away from a world that is dying without the Lord. Because you are to be God's light in their lives. You are to be the word of Christ and the embodiment of Christ for them. To help snatch them away from the fire that they are stumbling into. We must be in the world. Jesus has sent us into the world. Look at verse 18. 
Jesus says, as you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He said of the apostles, they're not of the world. But then he said, I've sent them into the world. And he's done the same for us. He has sent us into the world. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about how we are ministers of reconciliation. God has given us this message to take to the world. And the message is, you can be reconciled to God. The message is, Jesus has died on the cross and made a way for you to be right with God again. Your sins separate you from God. You can't have God because of your sins. But Jesus made a way for you to be reconciled to God. And so we plead with people, be reconciled to God. But in that passage, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul calls all of us ministers of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with that message and we are to take it out into the world. We've been sent to those who don't know Christ. And so we are in the world. And yet, we are not of the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Verse 16, Jesus says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The greater danger for Christians today, I believe, is this one. There is a danger for some of us, yes, that we are taking ourselves out of the world, that we are secluding ourselves out from from all the non-Christians around us. That's a danger. But the greater danger for most Christians today is that we are becoming worldly. We're becoming worldly. We're not set apart. We're not living as if we are set apart. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 27. James says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to... Keep oneself unstained from the world. Now there's really two parts to that. The ministry to the oppressed and the marginalized, but also the last part of it, which we're focusing on right now today, to keep oneself unstained from the world. You've got to have both of those things. You can do all the mercy ministry that you want, but if you become worldly in the process, you might hear from Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Even as we are sent out into the world, we must be vigilant not to allow it to infect us with its many diseases and deceptions. And this happens so imperceptibly. It happens without us even knowing. We, we, we just kind of absorb the culture around us. And if you're anything like me, I spent so many years absorbing it without really even thinking about it. That now I'm having to, to, to relearn how to live in holiness. I'm having to, to purge my life of all of these things which I just blindly accepted growing up. We see this all over our culture. The worldliness and sinful pleasures, and we just let it come. We, we take it in without really even giving a thought to what's going through our minds, to what's going through our eyes, to what's coming into our ears. The entertainment that we blindly accept and we blindly receive affects us, brothers and sisters. It affects us. We have to be vigilant to not allow the world to infect us with its many diseases and deceptions, which will harm our effectiveness for God and eventually may lead us away from the Lord. There is a danger here, and I have seen it firsthand among a number of people. 
that worldliness slowly does not seem very dangerous. Becoming more and more worldly a small step at a time does not seem very dangerous. And pretty soon someone is walking away from the Lord completely and giving up on salvation itself. Understand that this world has so many dangers that are not worth it. They are not worth it at all when we consider eternity. We are sent into the world, but like the frontline healthcare worker in the midst of a COVID outbreak who's wearing all manner of protective gear and yet still going in and working for the healing of the sick, we are called in the same way. And we are called to put on our protective gear. And what is our protective gear? Well, Lord willing, we're going to come to it in a few weeks in Ephesians 6. It's the armor of God, right? The belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the the, the shoes that are shod with the gospel of readiness, and then the sword. The sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Rather than being infected by the world in its ways, we must be transformed and purified by God's Word. Listen to Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be of the world, in other words. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and what is perfect. Being in the world, but not of the world, because we are being transformed By the word of God. Look at verse 17 in our text. Verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. You know what that means? It means set them apart. Jesus is praying and asking God, saying, God, set them apart in your word. May your word be what sets them apart. May they be transformed in their minds and in their hearts and in their actions by your word and so be set apart for you. It's all coming back to the word, you see, all coming back to the Bible. The Bible is what transforms our minds. The Bible is what changes us. The Bible is what sanctifies us and sets us apart. That is God's truth. And that is what keeps us from being worldly even as we are in the world. If you would be unstained from the world, if you would not be conformed to the world in its pattern, you must allow God to renew your mind by taking in his word day in and day out. This is the only way we can live in the world and yet not be of the world. I need another little drink here. Finally, I want to look at Part of Jesus' prayer that comes in verse 11 and verse 21. Verses 11 and verse 21. Verse 11 there toward the end, Jesus says, That they may be one, even as we are one. And then we go to verse 21, and he says, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may believe in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity in the church. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's praying for unity among believers, that they may all be one, even as Jesus and the Father are one. The unity of this church 
and of every church hangs by a thread at all times. The unity of this church, Columbia Christian Church, and every other church hangs by a thread at all times. Satan could gain a foothold in here at any moment. All it takes is for one of us to begin caring about ourselves more than the body as a whole. That's all it takes for one of us to start caring about ourselves more than the body. Perhaps refusing to forgive or being easily offended or becoming convinced that we deserve more than we are getting. The scriptures are full of examples of this stuff. It hangs by a thread and that's all it takes is one of us to begin caring about ourselves more than the body as a whole. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21. Why is unity so important? What is the purpose of it? What's the the goal, the intended goal? So that, see that at the end of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's what unity is for. That's why unity is so important. It's more important than almost all of us realize. The world looks to the church And what do they see? If they see believers that are united, that can lead to them believing that Jesus is who he said he was. But if they see believers that are divided, they won't believe Jesus' words about himself. They won't believe that the Father actually sent Jesus. They'll look at the church and they'll say, see, he doesn't really make a difference. They act just like the rest of us. They don't get along just like we don't get along. There's no difference in the people in there than the people out here. And so what's Jesus got to do with anything? Why would I give my life up for that? He doesn't make a difference. But when the world sees a church united around the gospel and around God's word and around God's mission, it witnesses something that is impossible anywhere else. Our world is overflowing with animosity and division. You see it everywhere. I don't have to teach any of you this. We see it all all the time. There's Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives, whites and blacks, and you can go on and on and on. And we, we, we find all of these ways to divide from one another and to hate one another. But here in the church, we have a family. A diverse family made up of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, made up of people who don't agree with one another on everything, because that's not what unity is. Unity is not agreeing on everything. That's not what unity is. Unity is loving and serving one another in spite of our disagreements, and showing the world that people who disagree on lesser matters can put them aside for greater ones can put them aside for the good of one another. We serve and love one another even amidst our differences. Unity means laying aside our preferences for the good of the whole. Unity means taking the time to see things from another person's point of view that is different than your own. Unity means Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If each one of us were doing that, what kind of radical witness could we have in this community? If each one of us in this church 
genuinely did what Philippians 2.3 says. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If we genuinely came to church and said, every single other person here is more important than me. Every single other person here is more significant than me. If we genuinely believed that, every single one of us, what kind of radical witness could we give to the community and to the world? Unity means things like Ecclesiastes 7, 21 through 22. Listen to this practical outworking of unity. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 through 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. This is such an important biblical principle. You hear someone talking about you behind your back. Where do you get the power to just let it go? Where do you get the power to really and truly not have any feelings of animosity toward that person who just said something hurtful about you behind your back? Only if you see yourself clearly. You get the idea from that passage? That passage says, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I am so thankful that God does not hold against me all the things I've ever said about people. Because I've said some pretty nasty things. I've said some really nasty things about people behind their backs. And I'm sure, being a pastor... There's been some things said about me. But guess what? I don't begrudge any of y'all anything you've ever said about me. Even if it was ridiculously horrible. Because I've said tons of things about other people. And and there's a freedom. There's such a beautiful freedom when you have everything you need from the Lord. It doesn't matter what everybody else says. It really does not matter. I love that person anyway. Let me give you a a wonderful illustration from Scripture. In 2 Samuel 16, tucked away in the Old Testament, there's a little story about a man named named Shimei who curses King David. King David and his men are walking by, and Shimei is just raining down curses upon David. It's not even behind his back. It's in front of everybody. And the king's men are saying things like, Why should we let a dog like this man curse the king? May we have permission to go take his head off? And David says, absolutely not. Maybe the Lord told him to do that. Do you you see? David says, no, don't do a thing. Let him go on. Maybe God told him to curse me. Maybe I'm in the wrong. Maybe that's what God wants to have happen. And if so, I want what God wants. I read that and I am flabbergasted at the peace and the humility and the contentment that David has in the Lord to be able to say, don't do a thing to him. Maybe that's exactly what the Lord wants him to do. Somebody says something about me behind my back. Can I have the humility to say, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe I am everything that they said about me. Maybe I've got a lesson that I need to learn instead of me going back to them and telling them what they need to do. Maybe the Lord wants this. There's such a peace. There's such a contentment in having everything that you need from the Lord and wanting what he wants in every situation that allows us to have unity 
among the church because we refuse to hold a grudge against anyone for anything. That stuff is not going to tear us apart. Backbiting, gossip, grudge holding is not going to tear us apart. We're not going to let that come in between the unity that we must have for the salvation of the world. I, I forget who said it first, but it's such a wonderful quote. A mature Christian is easy to encourage and hard to offend. That's what we want. We want a church full of people like that. A mature Christian is easy to encourage and hard to offend. An immature Christian is the exact opposite. Hard to encourage, easy to offend. We want to be the kind of people who are easy to encourage and very, very hard to offend. It's very difficult to offend that person because they have such a peace in the Lord and such a confidence in the Lord. It's like nothing phases them. That's what builds unity in the church. Unity, like Ephesians 4 that we read maybe a couple of months ago on Sunday morning. Ephesians 4, 2 through 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How will a sinful and lost world come to believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Only if we are one. Only if we are united. Right now we're going to spend a couple of moments in silent prayer. And I exhort you, I challenge you to go to the Lord and to confess to him anything that you need to confess. To plead with him and ask him for anything that you need to ask for in response to what we have just heard. In response to Jesus' prayer for us. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus is at this very moment, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And therefore, let us take every bold prayer to him, even the ones we're embarrassed about. Let's take them to him and give him our very heart. Expose our heart before the Lord. I challenge you to do that right now in these moments of silent prayer. Everyone, we're calling everyone to respond to God's word to whatever he's laid upon your heart. And then after a few moments of individual prayer, we'll come back and we'll have a time for those who need to respond to the Lord's word publicly. They can do so. Let's pray.